We're talking about the book of Revelation. And you might wonder, well, why study the book of Revelation? Isn't that just have to do with the end times or the last time, the end days? And I would say yes, it has to do with that. And that's where we're living right now. Now, there are traditions where they talk about, you know, there being a future uh, period of great tribulation, a seven-year period or whatever. Uh, and I, that may or may not happen. I, I'm persuaded that we're actually living in that time now. That this, th- these are the days of great tribulation that John was talking about throughout the book of Revelation. And if you just step back and look at the world, there are places throughout history that have gone through intense persecution and suffering and plagues and drought. I'm watching a, a PBS thing right now on, uh, uh, on the streaming video. I think it's on Netflix or something like that or Amazon about the Dust Bowl. Ten years of, of terrible weather uh, partially caused by man the problems that were experienced there in the central part of the Great Plains. Why study Revelation? Because we're living this book right now. That's where we are. We are in this period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Jesus. So it's very, very relevant uh, to each of us. The letters that we're looking at are divided into seven sections. And I told you last week, the way, that they're, the, the, the way that John uses the number seven and the number three and the number 10 and the number 24, I mean, he's got all these numbers. And they can be very uh, mysterious, but they can also make a lot of sense if you know what to look for. And that's what I'm trying to help you with. So let's read our passage. Looking at uh, the book of Thyatira, there's, the passage is printed in your bulletin. If you have that, you can read along or you can follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read it from the bulletin today, uh, just so you know that it's there, and we hope that you'll follow along. Now, as I read this, listen and see what you see. Let's read. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a sick bed into great tribulation, unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches the minds and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, 
To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and when, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star, and he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. This is the fourth letter, and it acts kind of like a hinge. Uh, Some scholars, I I doubt, seriously, I doubt that John, when he was writing this, and the Holy Spirit, and you know, all that, I really doubt that John said, well, I think I'll put a hinge letter in here. (laughs) But because there's seven letters, scholars have said, well, what is so unusual about this letter, and how does it act as a hinge? And it actually does. There's three in front of it and three behind it. We're going to look at the final three letters next week. But Thyatira was written to this church, Thyatira, which is the least of all these churches. In fact, Thyatira was no no place. It really had nothing significant. It's the least significant of the seven churches. And yet, you see this long, the longest of the seven letters written to this church. And in it, we are exposed to something that is shot through the entire Bible, shot through the book of Revelation, and shot through our lives. And that is this, what what I'm going to call and what other people have called the art, listen, the art of seduction. The art of seduction. There's no, there, there's, it's no accident that Jesus chose to write this letter to Thyatira about this subject and take all of the seven, all of the other six, all seven together, tying them together in this letter. It's fascinating, it's exciting, it's troubling, and it's beautiful. Listen to what, I don't know if, if any of you are familiar with the book, The Screwtape Letters. Any of you read, how many of you have read The Screwtape Letters? Good. A few summers ago, I think we were still at the synagogue, I recommended in our summer reading program, I said, why don't, you know, let's read The Screwtape Letters and prepare to be disturbed because it's a disturbing book. C.S. Lewis writes The Screwtape Letters and they are supposedly letters from Uncle Screwtape, a senior devil, as he writes to his nephew, Wormwood, who is a junior devil, on how to seduce, how to deceive, how to destroy Christ's people. And there's 31 chapters. It's really remarkable. And you read through it, and the, and the inside, I don't know, C.S. Lewis was a Christian, but my goodness, he got into the devil's head. Listen to what he said. This is one of the letters, one of the excerpts. This is Uncle Screwtape talking to his nephew, Wormwood, on how to mess with the people of God. That would be you. Listen. The fact that the devils are predominantly comic figures in modern imagination will help you. <laughs> 
if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, he's talking about the Christian, if any faint suspicion of his existence, of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him something in red tights. That was funny as all get out. You're only laughing because I told you. Let me read it again. If any faint suspicion of your existence, the devil, begins to arise in his mind, our mind, suggest to him something in red tights. Okay, go ahead and laugh now. That is very funny. Persuade him that since he can't believe in that, that figure in red tights, right? I mean, that would be, how foolish is that? We can't believe in a devil that's in red tights. He therefore can't believe in you at all. You see what he's saying? Here's how he summarizes it in his preface to the Screwtape Letters. Listen to this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race, the human race, can fall about the devil's. One is to disbelieve in their existence. Disbelieve that they exist. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. Now, they themselves, the devils, are equally pleased by both errors and hail the materialist or the magician with the same delight. You see, Satan has been deceiving us, the human race, as Herman pointed out so well this morning in Sunday school, since chapter 3 of Genesis. He has been deceiving human beings since the beginning. And he continues to deceive us today. And for us to think that he's not is either Foolishness or arrogance, but he is out there and he is deceiving us. And what we have to do is read this book, the book of Revelation, and see what Jesus wants his church to see. You see, each church, every church, all the seven churches that these letters were sent to originally, and every church since, Right up until today, every single church, and I'm talking about faithful uh, gospel-centered churches who are preaching Jesus Christ and with no apologies, every one of those churches has come under severe opposition. And of the seven, all seven, you should see, are under severe opposition. Smyrna... This is interesting. Smyrna, the church we read about last week in Pergamum, those two, the second and third ones, actually have the threat of violence, physical violence. You can die, he's telling these two churches. But the others, there's no mention of violence. It's all about seduction. And Thyatira is all about seduction, deception, delusion. And out of the seven churches, and this should be a warning to us all, out of the seven, only two remain faithful. 
Smyrna and Philadelphia. We'll talk about Philadelphia next week. So what do you see? We're asking three questions every week, so your outline is the same. What do you see? Why? Secondly, why are you seeing this? And thirdly, who do you see? What do you see? Why and who? Okay, look at the first few verses, 18 and following to 20. You should see. Here's, here's some things. You can, now, you can see a lot of things. I'm only going to point out some of the big ones. Here's what you should see. First of all, in verse 18, you should see a righteous judge. In other words, the picture is of Jesus with flaming fire and his feet like burnished bronze. I mean, he is, he is like a judge standing and looking at all of what is going on and his eyes are piercing through the fog, piercing through the masquerades, piercing through the lies and the deceptions that we cover ourselves in layer upon layer upon layer. And we actually go to the so far we go so far as to when we are entering the doors of a church we put on more extra layers so that nobody will ever see the real you because we know what's under there we think we do and what he's saying is he knows what's under there he sees And he is fixed. His feet can't be moved. Burnished bronze. You don't move that. Okay? You should see that he commends this church, Thyatira. In verse 19, he says, You've had love. You've had faith. You've had patient endurance. And your latter works actually exceed your first. He's telling these people, You excel in relationships. You're good at it. You love each other. You're doing exactly what Ephesus, the one that had lost their first love, you're doing that. And so where Dr. Dennis Johnson says that Ephesus is about uh, discernment, in other words, they knew the bad people and they didn't like them and they questioned and they did all that, but they were unloving. Discernment without love. Dennis Johnson comes back and says, Thyatira is the opposite. It's love, but no discernment. They got a prophetess. And you can almost hear, it's kind of funny, it's comical when you read it in English or in Greek, but when you read it, it says, that Jezebel. Can't you just hear that? Doesn't it give you a little chuckle? I guess not. Okay, <laughs> moving on. I get chuckle when I read, that Jezebel. You've let her stay with you. You can almost see Jesus while his eyes are flaming. He's shaking his finger at Thyatira. What are you doing with that woman letting her do this? That Jezebel. But he commends them. Then he corrects them in verse 30 or verse 20. I'm sorry. I have this against you. There's a difference. And let me make this point very quickly and listen to me. There's a very strong difference between loving correction and just scolding. You know what I'm talking about? Loving correction versus scolding. And sadly, in fact, Scott Sauls recently said in one of his posts, one of our pastors, he said nobody ever came to Jesus because they were scolded into it. But Christians have had a reputation for centuries of being nothing but scolds. They are standing in 
and with the, the, the sour look on their face and criticizing everything around them from high to low, east to west, you name it. You can only correct someone with whom you have a relationship, right? You know, I, t- I have two sons. They're both grown, and uh, I have two grandchildren. I know that I'm way too young. Monty V and I got married when we were 12. Um, I have two grandchildren. I told my boys lots of things. I said, Don't, you can't color your hair. You can't get tattoos. You can't do this. You can't do that. Guess what they did? All of them. You know, they got, so my son Daniel, I've probably told you this before, when he was in high school, he wanted to color his hair. He was you know, hanging out at the beach and surfing and doing all that stuff in Florida. He wanted to color his hair. I said, no, you're not coloring your hair. Dad, please let me color my hair. No, no coloring your hair. So he went out and colored his hair. Well, being of uh, Middle Eastern and, and, and uh, Cuban background, uh, his, his dark olive complexion and dark hair, he didn't go blonde. No, it turned orange, and I'm not talking orange. I'm talking Halloween orange, like bright, fluorescent orange. And, and I was furious. I wanted to wring his neck. In fact, I partially did wring his neck. But we have to go to church the next Sunday, right? Where all our friends are. What are we going to do with that hair? Nothing. There's nothing you can do. You could shave it off. His skin underneath was orange. It was so horrid. Anyway, we scolded him. We berated him. We corrected him. We even took him the next week to the hairdresser or whatever, and she fixed it and made it some color of yellow. I don't know. It was awful. But in Sunday at church, somebody made the mistake. One of my elders made the mistake of coming up and getting on Daniel about his orange hair, scolding him. And she did it, he did it, in front of Daniel's Latin mother. And the wrath of God came down that day in that church. (laughs) Nobody gets scolded into the kingdom. But families... You can say things to each other that you would never let somebody else say to your family, right? We can criticize internally because we have passport, we have relationship. But if you don't have that, then it's just a scold. And what Revelation is saying to you and to me is, Jesus is saying to Thyatira, He's saying actually to all seven, but He's saying to us, You're mine. We're family. I bought and paid for you. You're my son. You're my daughter. And when you're out there doing something that is going to hurt you, much more serious than orange hair, when you're out there and you're going to hurt yourself, I am going to intervene. I am going to correct you. And He does it. The one the Lord loves, He chastens he corrects and and don't think well if you know if you get in a car accident oh it must be god correcting me no those are those are usually not god's correction those are usually just accidents where he will correct you is when you're in the in the secrets of your heart something starts to percolate to the surface and you know 
that he's saying, stop it. It's going to hurt you. It's going to kill you. It's going to break your marriage. It's going to break your children. It's going to break your family. It's going to break your relationship with them and with me. It's going to cause you to lose your love. Lose your first love. And then the fourth thing you should see, and then we'll we'll get into what this is, is you should see danger. The orange hair was not going to really do anything to Daniel. I mean, we colored it. And now he's back to his, you know, he's 30-something and he's back to his dark hair. And Anyway. Why are you seeing this? Well, very simple, folks. Let me make this simple. The art of seduction, this word uh, that, that Jesus uses in describing what Jezebel is doing is she is teaching, she's teaching and seducing. She's teaching them something and by doing it, She is seducing. And the word seduce in Greek means to take someone or direct someone off the right path. Do you all remember the Roadrunner and Coyote comics? You know, remember that? And the Roadrunner, one of the the strategies of the uh, Coyote was that, you know, the Roadrunner is going beep, beep, and he's going really fast, right? And so the, the Coyote gets it in his brilliant mind to go to the crossroad where and turn the sign, right? So that one sign leads to Phoenix, and you're safe. This sign goes to what? What's out there just on the other side of that sign? A cliff, right? And so you know that, so that's what he's talking about. Changing the conditions of your life and your situation so that you go in the wrong direction, you take the wrong path. He is seducing He's tra- like in the Garden of Eden. He's telling, he's t- he comes to Eve and he says to her, has God said you can't have any fruit? From it? And, and Eve says, yeah, he said you can't have that fruit. Oh, that, there's nothing wrong with that fruit. He's turning the sign. He's leading them to the cliff. He's taking them into the trap. There's a stick of dynamite down there. It's going to blow up. And that has been the problem with us from time immemorial, yes? We are constantly fighting seduction. We had a great question last week uh, during the Q&A, and I, I do hope that, that some of you will stay for the Q&A, but one of, one of the participants in the Q&A last week said, what is all of this talk from starting with Ephesians and then with Smyrna and Pergamum and now Thyatira? Who are the Nicolaitans? Who are these false Jews, the synagogue of Satan? Who is Balaam and Balak? And, you know, he used that story uh, to, to describe what was going on in Pergamum. And who is Jezebel? Why is Jesus, through John, picking all these people and saying, here's what seduction and deception and lies, here's what it looks like. Okay? Listen carefully. The Nicolaitans, we don't know a lot about the Nicolaitans. This goes back to the week, last week. We don't know a whole lot about them, but basically what we do know is that they encourage people to break two prohibitions that had been given to the church, uh, had been given to specifically to Paul and, and Barnabas in their evangelistic uh, outreaches to the Gentiles, only two prohibitions. They said, don't 
encourage them not to eat anything sacrificed to idols, and I'll explain that in a minute, idolatry, food, sacrificed to idols, and to refrain from sexual immorality. The word is porneia. Abstain from sexual immorality and from eating things sacrificed to idols. The Nicolaitans evidently, we don't know a lot, there's just a little bit in early church history and that's all, there's just not a lot out there. What what they were doing is saying, it doesn't matter. It's okay. Eat whatever you want, no matter what. And sex, don't worry about that. Have sex with whoever, however, whatever, doesn't matter. Now, if you're thinking, if you're tracking with me, why is that seductive? Because those two things, food and sex, are what? They are the strongest two appetites that a human being has. They're primal. They go down to the very bottom of who we are. You can't live without food. And sex... Properly handled is very good, wonderful. God made it wonderful. Improperly handled, what will it do? It will addict you. Yes? So will food. It will addict you. I'm not talking about sugar. Think, think from 30,000 feet, okay? I know you've got to think. Stay with me. What about the false Jews in Smyrna? They, he talks about the synagogue of Satan and the false Jews. There was this movement within the early church by what were called Judaizers. You see, the first converts to Christianity were who? They were, they were Jewish people. And, and they, they had been enculturated by tradition and the scriptures for centuries that you had to do certain things in order to be acceptable to God. You with me? You had to be circumcised. If you were a male child, eight days old, you had to be circumcised. And you had to keep certain dietary laws. And, and in, order to, in order to make sure nobody broke those laws, like you don't, the Sabbath laws, don't work on the Sabbath, they came up with over 200 extra traditions that they added to it so that you wouldn't even get close to breaking the law. So you could only take so many steps on the Sabbath. You couldn't have a pencil around because, God forbid, you might pick it up and write with it. Things like that. And Jesus warned, he said, you Pharisees, you religious leaders, you make the Word of God to no effect with your traditions by adding to the Scriptures. So it's possible that the synagogue of Satan and these Judaizers were telling people, you know, to really be a Christian, to really be a Christian, here's the things you must be doing. In other words, here's all the fruit that you should be producing. And if we don't see that, then we may not think that you're a Christian. But the list is their list, not necessarily the Bible's list, okay, of whatever those are. They were adding something to it. Nicolaitans were saying, hey, it doesn't matter, do whatever. Hey, you're free in Jesus. You can sin, grace abounds, grace abounds. That's where they stopped. They didn't read the other part. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. 
that we should do such a thing. But no, no, no. They said, oh, everything's okay. And then you come down to the, the uh, Balaam and Balak, and these are these Old Testament stories. You can read them in Numbers 21 through 25 is where you get the story of Balaam and Balak. And then again in chapter 31, he describes that this prophet, Balaam, Uh, was hired by King Balak, who was a Moabite king, to curse the people of Israel as they made their journey from Egypt into the promised land. Do you all remember the story? They're making their way through, and Moses sends a letter to Sihon and to Og. Anybody going to name their kid Og? No. You might get away with Sihon, but you're not going to get away with Og. These are two Amorite kings and Moses sends them a letter and says, we just want to pass through. We will stay on the road. We won't even turn aside to get a drink of water from any of your wells, but the the straight way is the closer way to the promised land. Can we come? And Sihon and Og said, no. So Moses said, fine. And he sends Joshua and the army. And what do you think happened? They destroyed Sihon and they destroyed Og. And word got around, and Balak, this king in Moab, is getting ready to get that letter from, Mo- from Moses, can we come through your land? And he goes, ah, what am I going to do? I can't beat them militarily. I don't have the army to do it. I just saw what happened, and these guys are whatever, right? Stronger than me. So he hires this prophet, Balaam, to go and curse Israel. And Balaam can't do it. God won't let him curse him. But Balaam does tell him, look, I can't curse them, but here's how you can beat them. Get them to eat your food sacrificed to idols. In other words, it was to, it wasn't about the food, folks. I hope, do you see that? It's not about the food. It's about the fact that food that was sacrificed to idols had a certain meaning And they would say this, in order to come into my store and buy this piece of meat, you must pay a tribute to this god, Baal or Chemosh or whoever it might be. Or you must go to this festival that we're having and worship at this pagan festival. And at the festival, we will distribute the meat that was slaughtered for these pagan idols. Oh, and by the way, while you're in the marketplace, check out our women. They're beautiful. And you know what? If you marry our women, we don't have to go to war. We can all live in peace. Think of that. How great. We can live in peace. Just eat our food and have sex with our women. Are you, are you tracking with me? And now Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 16. And King Ahab. And listen to this. Ahab reigned in Samaria, king of Israel. Ahab reigned in Samaria 22 years, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And that was a bad list. 
And if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the evil of all the kings that were before him, as if that had been a light thing, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, the king of Sidon, where the temple of Baal was, and Ahab built Baal, an altar and a temple and swept in Baal worship right alongside the worship of God Himself. They didn't do away with God. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to move Him outside. We're just going to, we're going to have the altar for God over here and the Baal altar right next to it. Every one of these letters, folks, is describing seduction. Every one of them is telling you and I every day of our lives, watch out. There are things out there, like you talked about last night, Jeff, in the addiction. There are things out there that are going to come into your life, appetites that you may have, things that you may think are good things that are going to come into your life and they're going to start vibrating with you. They're going to feel good, taste good, do good things for you, but they're going to compromise your faith and they're going to move you into a bed of sickness. It's figurative language. It's poetic language. He's telling them, this woman will get you dead. I gave her time. I don't think it was a real woman named Jezebel, but there was certainly a prophetess. And he's just saying she's like Jezebel. She's taking people away. Lying to them and saying, get this job and then you'll be happy. Move to this place and then you'll be happy. Have a relationship with this person and then you'll be happy. Make this much money and then you'll be happy. Vijay and I were laughing a few uh, uh, months ago because we were talking, you know, you read all this stuff, how much money do you need to have in your savings before you can retire? Do any of you know what the number is? Anybody? Yeah, yeah two, who said two million? Okay, that was about two years ago. Guess how much you need now? No, you need five. And by the time we leave church, it's going to be six. And Satan comes along and he says, add this to your life or take this away. And it's not important. You don't have to worry about it. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to love people. You don't have to, don't worry about it. You can have sex. You can do whatever, whatever, whatever. Anything you add, anything that you start to try to make the gospel more attractive, anything that you try to find in your life that is saying, get this and then you're okay. Whatever that thing is, is Jezebel lying, deceiving us. And we've been fighting it forever. And our job as people of God, and my job in particular as your pastor, is to war, ring the bells and say, no, no, no. Politics can't save us. A huge mil- We have military people here. We, w- w- the greatest military on the earth is the United States, and we think we're invincible. Babylon thought that. Medo-Persia thought that. Alexander the Great thought that. Napoleon thought that. Hitler thought that. How long was the Reich going to last? A thousand years. 
And as the people of God, we've got to open our eyes and see nothing can save you. Nothing. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Yes? So nothing you bring into your life or or you think, well, I'll get rid of this and not do that. None of that can help you. And that's why we see it. Jesus loves His church. And He makes an imprecation that that should terrify you. And don't pull away and say, oh, how could God say that? He is fighting for His children. What would you do if one of your kids was under threat? What would you do, parents? You would go to war. You wouldn't just sit back and say, ah, whatever. And so Jesus said, you know what? Look at it. Verse 22 and 23. I'm going to throw her. I gave her time to repent. She did. I'm going to put her on a sick bed and I'm going to kill her children. Not talking about literal children. I'm going to destroy anyone and anything that comes to harm my children. I'm going to do away with them. So who do you see? Well, very quickly, let me finish with this. This should thrill your souls, folks. I don't know. I hope that you're seeing it each week. Who do you see? Who does John describe? After he talks about the one with the flashing eyes and the burnished, you know, the feet and all that, all that, you know, that oh, scary stuff, he comes back with this beautiful, gentle picture to the one who conquers, the one who keeps my works till the end. I will give him the morning star. The morning star. That's that star in the sky. Early in the morning, some people say it's Venus. You get up really early and you look out and there's that one bright star. Listen to what Dr. Dennis Johnson says in his commentary. This is so beautiful, I couldn't pass it up. I want you to hear it. In a vision, Balaam, you remember Balaam, that false prophet? In a vision, Balaam had seen a star. One of the times he was supposed to curse Israel, God put in his mouth a blessing. Instead, Balak got very upset. But listen to what it was. In a vision, Balaam had seen a star emerging from Jacob. A scepter like a king a scepter rising out of Israel to crush Moab. The star scepter symbolized the warrior king. The warrior king who would rise up and defeat the enemies of God. Who identifies himself. Guess where this warrior king identifies himself? Revelation Chapter 22, the very end of this book. Jesus said, I am the bright and morning star. I am the root and descendant of Jesse and David the king. I am the true king. How did Jesus become a morning star? How did he become your morning star? Have this mind 
in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God and did not count equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, here it comes, therefore, God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name above every name that at the sound of that name, Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The morning star rises up out of the darkness of night. The grave to become our salvation. And Uncle Screwtape, remember him? He saw it. Listen to this. Blow your mind. He's talking to his nephew Wormwood. And he says this, The humans do not start from that direct perception of Him which we, the devils, unhappily cannot avoid. They, humans, have never known that ghastly luminosity, that stabbing and searing glare, which makes the background of permanent pain in our lives. You see, the seduction, the Satan, the demons are living in that revulgent glory that we don't even see unless... And until you look into the face of Jesus. Will you trust Him? Will you put your trust in that bright and morning star and in nothing else? They're all seductions. Will you do it? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and let us see just a glimpse of that beauty of our Savior Jesus. How in the world can we live such plentiful lives here in this country and not see the glory of our Savior every moment who has gone through, emptied himself to become one of us so that he might rise up out of our humanity like the bright morning star and bring light to darkness, and hope to death. Please help us, save us. Have mercy on us, O God, according to your grace. Amen.